I'm John Holst with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the amazing people who make today's space exploration possible. Today, we are joined by Astroscale Group CEO Japan, Chris Blackerby. Chris served as the NASA attache for Asia, the senior space policy official in the U.S. Embassy Tokyo from 2012 through 2017. In that capacity, he identified multiple opportunities for cooperation in the region, served as strategic space advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Japan and senior U.S. government officials, acted as an official intermediary between NASA and its partners in Asia in negotiating agreements and resolving disputes, and participated in numerous outreach events highlighting NASA activities. Chris began working for NASA as a Presidential Management Fellow in 2003. While at NASA, he was a leader in forging international cooperative partnerships around the world in the fields of Earth science, space science, and human space exploration. From 2005 through 2007, Chris was the Executive Director of the NASA Advisory Council, which provided advice to senior NASA officials on future policies and plans. Chris received a BA in History and Education from the University of Richmond, Virginia in 1995 and a Master's in International Relations from the University of Rhode Island in 2002. In 2009, Chris earned an MBA from the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, John. So, that's a lot of history, and I think some people might be interested to know that in spite of the fact that you are fronting Japanese technology space company, um, they would say that your background doesn't look that technological. Yeah, it's or, non-traditional um, path that so, I took to get here. So how did that happen? Yeah, well, it's life. Life happens. Uh, I started doing different stuff. I was always interested in space. Space was always uh, fascinating, obviously, and, and things that happened uh, through childhood, such as the Challenger disaster. I was a child then, and that kind of, those issues really get cemented in your, in your mind and, and uh, drive you toward wanting to do something bigger. But I'd never really pursued space as, as my uh, ed- educational background. I was a history teacher, actually, for two years after graduating from college, and then I moved to Japan for a bit and lived in Japan, uh, traveled around Asia, went back to graduate school, and um, got, as you said, a presidential management fellowship, which is a great program that the U.S. government does where they take people who are just graduating from a graduate school program, and they put them in a two-year track in a federal agency that kind of pushes them toward a management level position. And you can work in different agencies. And so one of the places that I was working, that I chose to work in after being selected, was NASA. And working on their legislative aspects and their policies and and, and outreach and things. And of course, in the capacity of doing that, you get to know all of the technical people and you get to start to understand the technical side of things a bit more. And so I did that for uh, 14 years with NASA. Uh, working mostly on those policies, education, outreach, and supporting international cooperation. And NASA has a lot of international cooperation that people don't traditionally think about, but so much of what NASA does is partnerships with other countries, whether it's Europe or Russia or Canada or Japan, uh, and even smaller countries that don't traditionally have space programs. So it was a fascinating place to work, get to understand the technologies and meet the incredible engineers and scientists that work at NASA. NASA also has three overseas representatives. They have one in Paris that covers all of Europe. They have one in uh, Moscow that covers Russia and the human space flight, and one in Japan. And I got the job in Tokyo. So I moved over as the attache uh, to the to NASA attache at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, and I did that for five years. I love Japan. Uh, family's Japanese, uh, wife, 
and I uh, wanted to stay. And so I knew the founder and CEO of Astroscale, Nobu Okada, is a Japanese national, and he founded the company about six years ago. And we started talking, and he offered me to come on as, as COO, and that was about a year and a half ago. So that's a consolidated path, uh, a story, but uh, it's, a, as I say, a non-traditional path to, to being where I am today. Very cool. Well, actually, I just have a question then. As far as you, the history background a little mm. bit, has that helped, do you think? So I think a liberal arts background, whether it's history or philosophy or economics or anything, always helps. It helps to have a broader mindset of, uh, of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps to think and to write. So I think it really helps. Now, we've talked about how obviously STEM is vital uh, to uh, getting involved in these space fields and if you're interested in space, science, technology, engineering, math, that's where you should focus. That's, that is what drives it. But you need the support stuff, too. You need the education and the outreach. You need the lawyers and the teachers and the administrators and things like that to make, to make it work as well. So I think that background does help in, in life and in this industry. I'd say in this role you're a little more than support, but you know, <laughs> um, still, I, I think it gives uh, the arts, the liberal arts guys, a little hope in their space, <laughs> um, which is kind of nice. So you presented at Tech Track, my Tech Track, um, yesterday, mm. and thank you for that, by the yeah, way. It's sure. great. You're here at Space Symposium. You've got a booth open. I think you have a spiel normally. Why do you think people should care about space and space debris as far as what's going on? Well... We should care about it because we use it every day, and we're going to use it more and more. Already right now, everybody who's listening to this, I'm imagining that before you're listening to this, at some point, you have used space. You've used space to order an Uber or to get directions to go somewhere or to call family uh, by Skype that's in another country or to do something with your bank account. Space drives so much of what we're doing on a daily basis and on just a long-term scientific basis. Understanding climate change you know, requires satellites. To really globally understand the entire system requires satellites. It's something that we take for granted because we use it every day and we don't see it. When we see something, we understand that we're using it and, and we say, oh, that's important, we should take care of it. But if you can't see the orbits, you can't see the satellites, maybe just don't think about it, even though your smartphone and many other things that you're using every day is completely reliant on it. We're going to get more reliant on it. That reliance is not going to decrease. As we move into a world with IoT, Internet of Things, and we move into a world of self-driving cars, it's just going to become more and more important that we have reliable satellite communications and satellite information technology. So orbits are vital. Uh, it's, I like to consider it another natural resource. The same way any natural resource that we mine from the ground, or rivers, or lakes, or mountains, trees, the Earth orbital environment is a natural resource. And we need to protect it the same way that we want to protect terrestrial environmental. What makes that more complicated is it tends to be more international too, right? Incredibly. Global. So it makes it more complicated from what you just referenced, John, the international side, basically what you're saying, it makes it more complicated from a policy perspective. How do we address issues uh, in orbit when no one owns orbit? It makes it hard to uh, administer rules. It makes it hard to have penalties for anything uh, when orbit is owned by everybody and nobody. So that part is, is challenging. Uh, and it also makes it more difficult from a technology perspective. Uh, if something 
you know, we're, we're our company we can talk about is focused on bringing down debris in space. If there's debris on the ground, we can go grab it. You know, space debris is nothing new. It's been something that's been going on for decades. So why has no one really talked about this before? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, this, the Kessler syndrome was yeah. coined in 78, so... Yeah, 40 years ago. So you know, why have we been aware of this potential problem for 40 years, but no one has really taken any substantive action to do anything about it? It's a legitimate question. I think there's a variety of, of reasons why, and they're the reasons what the reasons that us as a company are addressing. I'd, I'd say we're not just a technology company. We're addressing the various aspects of the problem. And so for space debris, people have always known it's a problem, but for reasons of policy, for reasons of business, and for reasons of technology, it hasn't really been addressed. So on all of those three, three aspects, um, from a policy perspective, it's hard to address this problem because there is no one overarching authority that, that monitors uh, the orbital environment. So it's tough to get a global solution to this problem. And it's not necessarily a priority because, at least up until now, we've recognized that it could be a problem, but the whole space is big uh, concept has taken hold. And uh, I, I've, I talked about it a little bit earlier about the orbital commons being, uh, being something of a uh, 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 natural resource, an Earth natural resource. It's the same way that people weren't prioritizing uh, terrestrial environmental issues for a long time because things were big. The ocean is big. It doesn't really matter if there's more debris there. That mindset has clearly changed, and it's changing for Earth orbit as well. So, but for the last 40 years, it hadn't. For the last, since, the, since well, last 60 years, since the Sputnik was launched in the late 50s, we've steadily increased the amount of debris, but it's never been seen as an immediate necessary thing that we have to take care of. So from a, from a policy perspective, it hasn't been a, pri- a big issue, both from domestic governments or an international body. From a business perspective, it's hard to close a business case. Uh, you know, who's going to pay for debris removal? So people aren't really running down to try to solve this thing because they're not really sure how it's going to get paid for anyway. And from a technology case, it's tough. How do you do the technology to actually remove the debris? So for those issues, those reasons, no one has really jumped up and said they want to try to solve this, this problem. But people have been talking about it for a long time, but no one's come up with a real uh, solution that can be, can be applied. Why do you think today, though, or even the past five years, I mean, although we've seen some of these, you know, space debris, I'll call them scare stories, come out even earlier, and and yes, there's a kernel of truth to this, right? We do need to be concerned. If you're going to put something into orbit, you really should be doing the closing the loop as far as what do we do with the satellite once we go? Is a parking orbit good enough? Or is it something that we just can actively deorbit within a few months of the end of life of a satellite? So how does that work? Why? I mean, why so, now? Yeah, why now? The civil government, you know, whether it's NASA or JAXA or uh, you know the Russians with Roscosmos, or even the military, have for a long time been putting them up there. And I think part of it is the mission has been priority, and so the eco part of it has not been their focus, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. But again, I think that's changing. I think the mindset is shifting a bit on that. And I'll answer your question, John, by talking about the two different business lines that we're going to try to pursue. Mm-hmm. So for all of the debris that's up there now, 
the current debris. Why is now the right time to go get that? Accidents happen. They have happened. Uh, you know, it was the Iridium Cosmos collision of about 10 years ago that created a significant amount of additional debris. It showed us that we can't just turn a blind eye to it. It's, there, there, could be, there could be a problem. And so with the current debris that's up there, if we can even remove a couple pieces a year, uh, we were going to significantly reduce the chance that something like that will happen. So let's start bringing some of the debris that's up there now down. And, and then it won't create smaller debris, which will be, present a risk to a bunch of other, a bunch of other satellites. Governments are recognizing that, and governments are recognizing that citizens are reliant on these satellites, as we discussed earlier. So they have a responsibility in terms of protecting their citizen base to make it as safe as possible in the orbital environment. So there's that aspect of bringing down the stuff that's there. That's why this, that's why the governments are getting more interested. The other side of our business is to take care of future debris. That is, don't add any more debris to what's already up there. So in that sense, the entire landscape of the space industry world is changing over the last several years. Uh, we've seen it basically since the start of the century, uh, you know, SpaceX successfully doing what they've done in terms of creating this launch vehicle company that many people didn't think was possible to do as a, as a basically startup. Things like the X Prize, creating incentives for these uh, incredible missions to do things like what's created Virgin Galactic or the Google Lunar X Prize, which didn't have a winner, but it created it spurred a lot of innovation. So we're seeing all this innovation, this small technology, this new space coming into being. And what that's doing is, is potentially going to be driving down launch costs, driving down satellite development costs, and that's going to probably add more debris to the market. There's a lot of money being driven in here. If you look at the last... 15, 10 to 15 years, the amount of venture capital investment that has gone into space is incredible. It's skyrocketed. So where are people going to start to get concerned is where they have money. When people invest in something, they want to protect that investment. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of money in it, there's going to be an interest in making sure that that investment stays viable. So what we're talking about for the future debris is let's make sure that all of these satellites that launch, as you said, have a plan to deorbit themselves at the end of their mission lifetime. Right now, it's a generally accepted rule that 25 years after your mission ends, you should either go to a parking orbit, if you're in GEO, or deorbit, if you're in LEO, basically. Right. Is that too long? Should it be a shorter time frame? That's something that I think governments are starting to consider. Companies are building in deorbit plans into their launch missions now. All of the large constellations Amazon recently announced to be the latest to join this group, uh, launching hundreds to thousands of satellites into similar orbits. All of them say they have uh, deorbit plans, which is great. They're all being very responsible, which is excellent. But what happens if that satellite fails? Which can happen. Obviously, machines can fail, and machines have failed in orbit. So if that satellite fails, it would need to. It would not be able to be brought down, potentially. Right. Uh, and if it's at 1,000 or 1,200 or even 900 kilometers orbit, it's going to be up there for centuries. So what we're proposing doing is, before these satellites launch, put a, a deorbit mechanism. Our proposal is a, is a plate. It's a plate that has a ferrous material on it, and so it can be attached to with a magnet. And so that plate serves as kind of a, a hitch on the back of a car. Your car, every car has a little hitch on the back, so if it fails, uh, the in the U.S. it's AAA. The car, you know, retrieval company can come and put their thing hitch, pull it up onto a tow truck, and bring it out of the way. So our proposal is to put this 
uh, docking plate on all satellites. It'll serve as the hitch, and we'll be the the AAA or the car service company that comes up, satellite service company, mm-hmm. attaches to it with a magnet and brings it out of out of commission. But there is a trade-off, right? I mean, ferrous material tends to be a little heavy, and especially if you're working in the small sat, cube sat domain, uh, one of the reasons why you're attracted to that is because you're not paying as much in mass costs to, to lift. So Yeah, it won't be that heavy. We're not really talking about how heavy, but it's it's minimal. Okay. It's minimal. just enough to get him to It's it's very very minimally intrusive. Uh, it's not going to inter interrupt the uh, uh, activities of the satellite because it's not magnetic in itself. Mm-hmm. But our solution is is quite light and uh, and quite minimal in terms of size. So we think that there's a benefit there. Now, we wouldn't be suggesting attaching this plate to a one U CubeSat. Right. <laughs> Those are pretty low anyway. They're probably going to deorbit within. You know, they're usually you know a lot of them launch from station, so they're going to be below 400 anyway. They don't have propulsion. They're going to be coming down soon. What we're looking at is a bit larger in size. Everybody should have the deorbit plan. Our target market is a bit larger uh, and a bit higher up, probably. Yeah, I think most of the one use that I've seen, there are some exceptions, but typically they're supposed to have a mission life of six months or something like three months. And, and, and then and they're low enough that they'll come down naturally. They'll, they'll naturally right. decay. So our our plan is at a little bit larger. So the size of the docking plate it is very light, but it won't have a huge negative impact on the mass of the. Satellite. Let's get into the plan a little bit. I mean, so you're, I mean, how does what does astroscale bring to this as far as what mechanisms we're talking magnetism here mm-hmm. a little bit. So if you don't mind talking about that, that'd be. So what I'll do the way I'll talk about this is to explain our our technology demonstration mission that's okay. planned to launch next year. It's called ELSA D End of Life Services by Astroscale D for demonstration. And we're planning to launch that uh, next year. What that's going to be is a, a satellite that's going to be a servicing satellite, and it's going to be attached to a small piece of dummy debris, basically a client. That's a stand-in for a client. We're going to launch these two satellites attached. They're going to be connected to each other when we launch them. Mm-hmm. And we're going to launch them to our desired orbit, and when they're in orbit, we're going to separate them. On the piece of dummy debris on the the makeshift client we're going to have one of our docking plates that I just explained Uh, it'll have optical markers on it so we can track it on the servicing satellite the one that we're planning to replicate and build for future missions it will have a small uh, protrusion it's not a robotic arm so much but it's something that will come out of it and it will have a magnet on the end of that protrusion and so they'll separate in orbit, and then the, the larger satellite, the servicing satellite, will approach the client and attach. So what we're working on here are the guidance navigation and control, proximity operations technologies that can allow the larger satellite, the servicing satellite, to find the client satellite. Now we're going to do this three different times. The first time we're just going to separate and we're going to maintain a stable uh, client satellite so we can just show that we can find and attach. That's the first thing we're going to do. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to institute a tumble in the client satellite. So simulating a piece of out of control debris. The servicing satellite will then come over and start looking for that plate with the optical markers. Now it's going to be tumbling, so it's not going to be able to find it right away. It's going to map the tumble of this uh, client satellite with the servicing satellite. 
So it'll go around and be looking for that plate. And when it finds it, it'll attach to it and they'll stabilize again. And the third time we're going to go, we're going to lose the, serv the, the, uh, the client satellite. And so then the servicing satellite using both ground-based and onboard sensors will find it and attach to it and then we'll deorbit the whole mission. So there's a, there's a video of our concept of operations on our website, astroscale.com, so you can see it in visual of what we're planning to do. The third part of that sort of reminds me, so I used to work in Missile Defense Agency as a mm -hmm. contractor there, and it reminds me a little bit of mid-course tracking a little bit, where you're dealing with cold, lost objects, you're not sure, so you have to use other sensors to help guide in things. Yeah, well, and in, in our case, Astroscale satellite. Yes, that's what we would do, and in, in our case, on the case I just described, what we're doing for the technology demonstration, and what we'd be doing for all of those future debris, as I talked about our two business lines, mm -hmm. the future debris, it would be semi-cooperative docking. So mm -hmm. the, the, the client satellite would have on something that we knew what it was, we'd be prepared to attach to it. Uh, for the debris that's already up there, it would be more like non-cooperative because it does not prepared with a, with a plate. It doesn't have ferrous material on it. We can't use a magnet to attach to it. So we have to then think of another attachment mechanism. Right. The guidance, navigation, and control, the prox ops, the uh, propulsive technologies will be generally the same, but the capture will be different. And so that's why we have to, we're going to be able to share some technologies between the two business lines, mm -hmm. but certainly there will have to be some adjustments for missions that will focus on debris that's currently up there. And we're looking at various possibilities for that, likely something like a robotic arm or something of that nature. So you'll be testing other technology aside from magnet for this? We'll have to. Yeah. We'll have to. So the, the magnet is, is what we're focused on first for the, for again, all of that debris, that all of the, the future launches. So do you see, as far as Astroscale's uh, spacecraft, with the, either the magnet or the whatever you mm -hmm. decide eventually to use, is this for, say, high-priority problematic satellites? It's not for general cleanup, right? This is something that you... It can be for both, but it's going to depend on the customer. Uh, we're, we need to be looking for who the customers are. So in terms of high-priority cleanup, I guess if a commercial customer suddenly loses a bunch of satellites, if they've launched a dozen or more and there was a, a persistent problem, mm -hmm. a systemic problem with all of those and they've all failed, uh, if they had prepared themselves with the docking plate before, then it, we can more easily launch either on a, on a customer launch vehicle mm -hmm. or depending on the uh, maturity of the on-demand launch market, which is just starting, try to find some launches there, go up and bring down those, one or multiple of those. Yeah, that's, so that's the next question. How big are these, by the way? So you're talking... So our test missions, are it's about 160 to 170 kilograms for the uh, for the servicing satellite, and the, the uh, client satellite is about 15 to 20 or so kilograms. Okay. So that's not too bad. Yeah, so a total of about, about 200, a little less, probably for our test mission. We'll probably be bringing that down a bit more. For our future missions, of course, we're not going to need the the dummy client right. uh, on there. So it'll be, uh, we're looking in, at the 150 to 200 kilogram range and for the future missions. So these would be fairly, since they're small, you could use something, say, like from uh, a deployment mechanism from other provided from another company to just get you on a particular launch vehicle. Yeah, either as a, well, either with a dedicated launch with some of the, you know, a lot of the new 
uh, new companies. Some are even less than that, but most of them were about the 150 up right. range for capacity. So we could use a lot of the the new yeah. uh, new launchers. Yeah, Rocket Labs, Electron, 150, yeah. or so, a little bit higher depending on where you're going. Yeah. Uh, you know, Virgin Orbit. A lot of them are up on that that range. We could we could work on that, or or do it as a as a as a as a payload or a piggyback type. Right share. But, yeah, ride share. So. There's there's different options we could do. I mean, obviously, if the customer has a specific target that we need to go after, which they will when we're launching, the dedicated launch makes sense. As we're talking about the government missions, which are focused on the debris that's already up there, some of that's a lot larger. Mm-hmm. So we may need to scale up our our servicing satellite a bit more to account for more propulsive capability, or to be able to bring down that those larger upper stage uh, rockets or defunct satellites. So, what are the challenges to something like this that you that you can mention or talk about? To, I mean, part of it is obviously the customer should hopefully be using some of the system, but what what else is going on? So, there's a lot, and we break the challenges down into those three categories of focus areas that we're looking at: mm-hmm. uh, the technology challenges, the policy challenges, the business case challenges, and there are significant challenges in each of those. Uh, but that's why we're building an experienced, dedicated team to focus on all those. So from technology challenges, it's it's a lot of what I just described. How are we going to make sure we are able to attach to to a defunct satellite? How can we find it? Mm-hmm. How can we uh, do the prox ops and the RPO, the rendezvous, and prox ops to approach and find how can we attach to it? Um, and then how can we bring it down? And if we bring it down from uh, an altitude of, let's say, 1,000 kilometers, we need to go through some crowded orbits, 800, 600 or so specifically are pretty crowded. Mm-hmm. So do we, can we just do that without any propulsion or can we just kind of let it go down? No, we're going to need to be able to have collision avoidance maneuvers. We're going to need to be able to get around those orbits. So those are all challenges technically that we're working on. From a policy challenge, how do we solidify the regulations, the uh, standards, the best practices? And we're involved in all those conversations. There's a group called CONFERS which I joined a meeting yesterday and talking about best practices for on-orbit servicing. And we're active participants in that. We're meeting with governments and talking about a lot of these new regulations that are coming out primarily in Europe, where we have an office in the UK. U.S., where we're, we're having an office. We're going to have an office soon. Uh, hey, is that an announcement? What's <laughs> going on here? Well, it depends on when this airs. I think it'll already be, it'll already be announced. But we're here at the Space Symposium, and we're going to be making an announcement at the Space Symposium Excellent. that we're going to be now having a, an, an entity in the U.S., and we've decided to open that here in Colorado, in the Denver area. Uh, so we we're gonna we already have some uh, a person working for us in Washington D.C. He's doing a great job tracking the policy in BD. Mm-hmm. Our office that we're opening here in in the U.S. will be focused on broadening that capability, looking for uh, expanding our supply chain, expanding our personnel, uh, looking for opportunities for both government and in, and uh, commercial missions in the U.S. Uh, up until now, we've primarily focused on Japan and Europe for all of those things, supply chain, personnel, potential business. The U.S. is obviously the market we need to look at as well, and there's a, there's a lot of interest here now. So we'll have this, this uh, office in the U.S., and then we have it in Japan. So we're going to have this footprint in three of the, of the main areas of, of, uh, of technology development and interest in solving this issue. 
And so from a policy perspective, we're getting involved in all of these discussions. And then from a business case perspective, we're talking to governments about what kind of business we could do with them. We're talking to these commercial providers, primarily a lot of these large constellations that are going to be launching soon, talking to them about how we can provide a service for their future missions. Sounds like you've got a lot of things going on, which is good. It is good. It's um, challenging. It's fun. So I think really we, we've – your time is, is great that you've – especially with the split in the meeting. Thank you. Thanks. For, I know. For, it's for it's, for been, it's fun us. to talk about this stuff. Yeah, so. it, absolutely. So I'm going to just have to, I think, stop it here. And so this will conclude this episode of the Space Foundation Space for You podcast. Keep your eyes and ears open for more Space for You episodes by checking out our social media outlets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website at the www.spacefoundation.org. On all those outlets and more, it's our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community because at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.